You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 307, dated Friday, May 5th, 2023. Before we continue, let me introduce... Uh, Peter Alcho, who, as we're going to find out, is going to be our guest for today because the guest that we lined up for today couldn't be with us. But I'll say hi to Peter right now just the same. Peter, what's going on? How you doing? Hey, it's uh, we're doing fine in Columbia. We're about to hit summer tomorrow, 80s uh, tomorrow and 90s Sunday. So I guess summer is arriving early, much to my annoyance. We're getting that next week. Yeah, well. It seems that whatever you get first, Peter, we get later. That's how it works from Missouri to New England. I think that's correct. Yes. So let me thank those who make it possible for In Perspective to be made available. We have Raymond Gay, our editor and producer. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline, because they post our shows. Jacqueline Sylvia. JS Web Solutions. She archives our shows on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. And of course, the media outlets I would like to thank them for airing us when they do. And also, and before, I'm sorry, Peter, before you go, go right on, I, I have to say my uh, traditional merci, Jackie. All right. I want to thank Herbie for filling in today as our host. Thank you for taking the time today. And, of course, Chanel is streaming for us on ACB Media 5. And I also have a listener I'd like to say hi to, Elizabeth Sammons. She checked in with us. So, Elizabeth, hello. Thanks for your support. As I said at the outset, we had a guest scheduled for today, but she couldn't make it. Peter Alchel has been a guest on our show several times, and so I decided to bring him back. He agreed to it. In fact, we both agreed to it. Peter has led a full life, but he also has time to write. And he wrote a book that we've talked about from time to time. And I think a lot of the conversations that we're going to have today stems from that. The name of the book is Riding Elephants, Creating Common Ground Where Contention Rules. And I also want to invite Deborah Kendrick, who's here with us today. She's going to be wearing Peter's traditional hat. She's going to be the co-host, and she's going to be participating in the interview. Welcome, Deborah. How are you? Well, thank you. I'm just fine. And since everyone else is giving the weather report, I'll tell you that here in sunny Florida, it is sunny as usual. And uh, I don't know, maybe about 80 degrees, but it's been a very lovely day. Oh, wow. I'm jealous. <laughs> so anyway, Peter, you wrote the book, Creating Common Ground Where Contention Rules, and I think where we should start, when you use the term elephants, this is just so our listeners can understand better. What do you mean when you say elephants? What do the elephants represent? Uh, thank you, Bob. So when uh, I was writing this book, uh, I came across the concept of elephants by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, which is spelled H-A-I-D-T. So it's not H-A-T-E, it's H-A-I-D-T. And the way he argued it was that elephants represented intuitions or emotions or feelings and that our challenge, uh, as, as, as effective human beings is to learn to ride those elephants more effectively, to, to use those 
emotions, intuitions, and feelings productively. Um, cause, because feelings, not, uh, thoughts drive action. Thoughts control the action. They steer the action, but they, but, 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 but feelings, it, it, it supply the energy. So that's really the, the, the basic thought of the, the main point of the book, which is elephants represent feelings and the, 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 we ride the feelings to hopefully to good results. So that's the, the basic concept of the book. So this is Deborah and I'm going to jump in right here as you invited me to do. And before I ask you a question, Peter, I just want to say again, um, I reread the, the prologue today. You know, I've read your book before a couple of times actually, but I was just struck anew at just how tight and brilliant the prose is in this prologue. I, I just love it. So keep those words coming. It's, it's just, it's just beautiful to read that kind of clear, strong communication. Thanks. And so <laughs> thank you for that. You're welcome. You're thank welcome. you. So, um, you take the the elephant metaphor, but then you you talk about thoughts and feelings, thought channels and feeling channels, and you s- contend that where our disagreements are um, difficult conversations and moments arise is when some of the people are on the thought channel and some people are on the feelings channel. And I wondered if you could, and, and there are, there are some in the book, but I think it would be really useful for people to just hear you talk about how those thoughts and feelings collide. And so I wonder if you could give us an example that you have, uh, witnessed where thoughts and feelings, and particularly an, an example that because you say in the book that feelings are often the channel that, that the people who are different in some way or um, suppressed in some way are experiencing. And, well, to be more clear, you say something like, the feelings are, are coming from the women and the people of color and the thoughts are coming from the, the white males. So, which it was... It was great. But anyway, if you could give us give us an example of a conversation where that's going on. So this whole concept came for me when I was helping run uh, seven day uh, uh, team building sessions. And the person who was in charge was a really brilliant organization psychologist named Dr. Kenneth Soul, S-O-L-E. And invariably, what would happen in these sessions is. Uh, we would get to these really weird conversations that were sort of circular, that weren't going anywhere, and the tension in the room was rising, you know, sort of precipitously, even exponentially. And so, you know, we'd have these conversations, and we're all like frazzled. And he would stop and say, okay, what just went on? And we would say things like, well, we're not listening to each other. We're talking past each other. And then he would say, why is this happening? And nobody knew how to respond. You know, it just is happening. We need to be better listeners. Well, 
Um, what he argued, and I found this to be an incredibly useful concept, is everybody has a thought channel and a feelings channel. And in order for conversations to be effective, you have to be, you have to uh, work on both channels. And Deborah, what you were talking about, uh, and what, um, and what happened, what invariably happened in these conversations is you'd have mostly, not always, but mostly women and people of color talk about a situation that they found themselves really frustrated in, you know, uh, some kind of discrimination or some kind of weird dynamic that was going on between them and, and white males and white males. So, and, and they talked sort of on the feelings level, how frustrating it was, how irritating it was, how, um, uh, how, uh, how, um, you know, uh, stressful it was. Now notice those three words. They're all feelings words, right? Irritating, frustrating, <laughs> stressful are all feelings. And what the men would do, the white men, and they met well. This is not a situation where th- th- we white men were being, you know, deliberately hostile. We were trying to help them deal with the problem. And we reviewed it as a problem and how they could solve it. Things that they could do or we, or that the, both groups could do at the same time to resolve the problem. And that would just frustrate the, the folks describing the problem more. Well, why was that? Because we white men weren't, uh, weren't acknowledging the feelings. We weren't saying things like, gee, that must be, you know, some, some way of saying, Hey, these feelings are legit. They're real, you know, uh, and try to sort of connect with those feelings, the feelings channel. And because we never did that, the conversations just spiraled more and more crazily out of control. And, um, and so it, one more thing I'll say about it. And that is this is often happens when we're dealing with diversity sort of type issues, but it often happens when we're in a close relationship, right? So, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, you, once you get used to it, you'll, you can experience it. You'll see it. So often what happens in a, in a, in a, uh, significant relationship as these conversations uh, begin to happen. And usually it's the men who are talking on the thoughts channel and trying to, trying to address the problem that the, uh, their spouse is trying to address or a significant other is trying to, you know, try to describe. And the conversations, they, they, they talk past each other and, uh, and it becomes really clear what's going on. The, the man, the man usually is talking about how you, how to resolve a problem. And the woman is saying, you're not listening. And what, what, what he's really saying is, you're not, you're not acknowledging my feelings. And how come uh, it's not the reverse sometimes? It, it, it can be. It can be. But I think it has to do with sort of societal norms. Um, you know, men are, 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 we men are trained to be problem solvers and we're trained not to take our feelings seriously. And women are trained to be feelings nurturers and are not trained more to be problem solvers. I think it's a societal thing. It may also be the way our brains are, 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 uh, are wired. Um, there's some research that, that, that says that women tend to connect their halves of the brain more than men do, but that research is, right. is not right. always, uh, is, it's, it's not, is, and, and the other thing I need to say about this is that there are some men who are really good nurturers and there are some women who are really good problem solvers, right? And so, at, um, and one of the things I'll also learn from Kenneth Soul is often the differences between groups, uh, uh, are, are less than those within the same group. 
I didn't say that very well, but you know, there are plenty of men who, who are, uh, who are, who are really good nurturers. I wasn't one of them for, for a long time. <laughs> I, think I've got, this, I think I've gotten better, um, over well, the years. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. This, this reminds me of the, the, the work and, and writing of Deborah Tannen, who's a linguist mm-hmm. who writes a great deal about conversation and the differences between men and women in conversations where she's, she says that Men, if, if, if men get together to talk, they're, will often sit by, side by side, sit on the couch together in the car and have a conversation where they're not looking at each other. They're looking straight ahead. They have these parallel conversations, whereas women are more inclined to want to, to face each other, to look right. at each other. And, and then the, the idea of, um, problem solving. If, if you, if a, a, a woman has a problem and she's, you know, telling a tale to, to her partner who's male about, uh, an injury she experienced at work, um, a man is going to say, well, this is what you need to do the next time. And whereas a, a female partner or friend is more likely to listen and say, um, I, I feel what you're feeling. And so I'm, I'm throwing that out because I'm asking you, is this the same thing in a different package? I think thoughts and feelings. I think, I think the answer to your question is yes. Uh, and I, I, and I've read Deborah Tannen too. And I just like the channel concept that unless you're, unless you're speaking on both channels, uh, you, you often talk past each other. And, and, and here's the punchline. The punchline is, once women or people of minority groups feel heard, then they're ready to address the problem. Often. Can you always. give us an example of a resolution that you've either facilitated or participated in where that has occurred, where an example where the thought channel folks were saying one thing, the feeling channel saying something else and how they had a meeting of the mind, so to speak. Well, I, I will, I, I will, I will talk about a, a friend of mine who is, um, in the process of, uh, of, of, uh, getting ready to get surgery. She is, she is colorectal cancer, stage four colorectal cancer. And, uh, uh, I've been trying to support her going through this. And one of the things that she and I have often talked about is this very issue that people, uh, th- that many of her friends are, Telling her how to, how to deal with the problem and, and not, uh, not focusing on her feelings, what she's feeling about all this stuff. And I've spent a good chunk of my time and it's really hard for me sometimes just to let her vent and to Mm -hmm. say, it's okay to vent. Uh, you know, and try not to say those trivial trite things that we all hear all the time when we are in these situations, you know, uh, you know, um, and, um, and sort of helping her work through those feelings makes it easier for her to figure out how to approach certain things. And once she's at that space, then I'm in a place to support that or to, 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 to make suggestions or, you know, um, or, or to, or to deal with the problems she's experiencing, which are many, you know, having to deal with the surgery and the, uh, what to expect and how to address, how, how to address her guide dog while she's gone. There's all kinds of issues she's trying to figure out. But, but if I had sort of left to those problems, I don't think I would have been nearly as effective. Um, but I spent a good chunk of time 
you know, uh, trying my best to sort of let her, let her feelings be real for her and to say things like that's real, you know, or, you know, that, you know, and just try to be, um, as be- a good listener on the feelings channel as I know how. And what I will also say is, um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, I, I could never do that. I just didn't have the skills and t- to do it. And now I'm, I'm better. I don't think I'm as good as I could be, but I'm much better than I was. You know, was 20, that, um, was that experience, Peter, which led you to this point right now? No, this is, this is a re- this is a recent thing I'm experiencing. The, the, um, uh, um, but, you know, going through these week long seminars where I helped, you know, help Dr. Soul run, you know, I had just got my master's in social work, uh, and had begun to learn about these issues of feelings and being able to acknowledge them and help people express them and acknowledge them. But it didn't really connect with me until I saw this in action. You know, these, these, these well-meaning people of diverse backgrounds trying to learn something about building teams and, Invariably, this, these conversations would happen. It happened every single time at every session I worked with Kennethon. Um, and, and, and it was just stunning to watch. And it was also stunning to watch, you know, once they understood the concept and they began to practice those feeling skills and those, and those thoughts, problem solving skills, the whole tenor of the conversations began to change. It was just a remarkable thing to watch. And now, you know, I find myself when, um, uh, you know, I, I hear about, uh, or I, I hear conversations that are going, that are going uh, off course. I will now say things like, um, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, the woman or whoever it is who's having these problems. Hey, talk about your feelings more. How, how do you feel about it? You know, and, and, and it gives her a shot to really express what she's feeling. And then the guy will ultimately say, or the other person will say, gee, I didn't realize that was so intense. Or some language like that, you know, and sometimes would apologize. Gee, I, I, I miss this. And then they're in a better place to talk about it. It, it, this is not off. This is not a big deal off. It's just, it's just a question of catching yourself before you go into problem solving mode as a guy to, to make sure that she, she feels heard on the feelings channel because feelings are where the energy, uh, comes from, you know, uh, and so you, you gotta control the energy, the elephant. Before you can go into problem solving mode. And that's what you I've talk, you, you talk about, um, rubber band rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, I want to hear you talk a little bit about that and explain it to the listeners, but I want to point you to, um, one example and to have you expand on that example when you explain rubber band rhetoric. When you, you give the example of, uh, sharing a meal with a, a friend who's a disability activist and you say, um, to that person, you know, what, what would you say if, if after demeaning people with disabilities or taking away programs that Im- uh, improve the life for people with disabilities, if Trump suddenly announced that he had some sort of learning or psychiatric disability and your friend says, um, I, I don't want him to have a disability. He's not welcome. And I, yeah. I love, I love the story, but I, I want to hear you talk about and apply your rubber band rhetoric to that story. Yeah. So thank you. And that, that conversation actually did happen. Uh, I was, uh, so, uh, so let me talk about rubber bands. So we are all in various groups or tribes or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and in all groups, it doesn't matter the kind of group, um, 
they're constantly sort of stretching or contracting the rubber band to, uh, to welcome more people in, to welcome more resources in, or contracting it to keep people out or keep resources out. And the challenge of, of, of all these groups, it doesn't matter what the group is, is to figure out where the right balance is. You know, you want, you want the, the, uh, enough stretch of the rubber band so that valuable resources can come in and, uh, you know, so you can benefit from those resources, but you don't want it to be so taut that, that it breaks. And then the group becomes, you know, no longer is a group. It's a blob, right? So, you know, and, and every group goes through this. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, every family goes through this, you know, uh, you know, so you, you want it, you want it to be a family, um, that, that's a real family that that has its own way of doing business, but you also want to stretch it, the rubber band so that they can have friends and and different ideas and different approaches to deal with problems or whatever it is. But you don't want it to be so the rubber band to be so tight and that that um that it becomes not no longer a family. And it's the balance is hard, and it's done on a case by you know sort of a moment by moment thing. Um, and and so th- that's the that's sort of the tension now. During the course of a conversation I was having, uh, with, with a guy who has been, uh, been an activist for many, many years in the disability community. Um, and, and he was sort of talking, he was one of these people. I don't even remember back in the, uh, 2017, uh, President Trump was trying to, uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, otherwise mm-hmm. known as Obamacare. And I remember he, he was one yes. of these people who, um, was demonstrating, uh, and, and, Blocking, uh, the doors of, of congressional people so they couldn't get out. He, you know, he, he, they, he, he wanted to be arrested, basically. It was civil disobedience, the same thing that Dr. Martin Luther King did in his, in his demonstrators. And, and so he was arrested several times and he's been arrested many times during the course of his life. And so we were talking about that. And I said, you know, I was sort of, I, you know, I asked him to sort of talk about what drove him to do it. And, and, and then I said to him, do you think President Trump has a, some kind of a disability. And his response was, I don't care. I, I don't care. He, he's, he's, um, um, he, he is a hostile to our, what we're trying to accomplish. And I don't really care if he has a disability or not. Okay. That's a perfectly reasonable response. You know, President Trump has not been an advocate of the disability community. He has not supported the disability community in any way that I'm aware of. Uh, and, and, um, but what would happen? If President Trump were to acknowledge and say, you know, gee, uh, I, uh, I have a learning disability, uh, which he, you know, which I think he might, um, well, how would, how would that change the conversation? Well, that would give the disability community a, a, at least the opportunity to stretch our rubber bands and accept him a little bit and see if he's willing to work with us a little more. Now he has not done that, but you know, if he did, or supposing he were to say, I have a psychiatric disability. I am, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, you know, um, how, it, how, it, how might that change the relationship? And that was the conversation I was having with this guy. And this guy didn't want to hear it. He, 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 for him, uh, he didn't want to hear it. Uh, but it, 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 it served an intriguing thought that I've been wrestling with for, because often, um, a lot of the folks we deal with have hidden disabilities that they don't want to talk about. But if they, if they can, find their way to talk about it, often the conversation changes drastically. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the rubber band, uh, concept. Um, and it's something I found really, really useful when I talk to groups about this topic, you know, because you want, 
the rubber band, you want the rubber band to be, uh, wide enough so that you can have these really cool, um, uh, resources come your way. And one of the, one of the things I, I'm very much in favor of, uh, is having these conversations between disabled groups and, uh, other groups who are, have discrimination, whether it be people of color or women or whatever, because, because, because we are often, having similar experiences, not the same experiences, but similar experiences. And we can learn from each other if we give our rubber bands a chance to, um, to, to, uh, to, to learn and to work together whenever possible. Do you think that that's going on, that, that those kinds of conversations are evolving now? Um, not enough. I think it's happening more now than it was, uh, 10 years ago. I, th- I think there, I think these conversations are beginning to happen. What do you think about, okay, I'm, now I, I don't mean to pick on the dead, but right. just the, the examples that come to mind happen, one of them happens to be dead. What do you think about someone who's, who's very high profile, who acquires a, a disability or a disabling condition? And the, the examples that just popped into my head were Rush Limbaugh losing his hearing, Jane Fonda announcing that she had um, non-Hodgkin's um, lymphoma. So uh, what would a conversation with those two people with the, the disability community be like? How would you take advantage of those opportunities to bring them to the table? Well, let's talk about Rush because Rush is, is was another guy who was, you know, uh, generally hostile to uh People from minority groups. And so the, the first thing I think that, that I would think about very carefully, um, is, is Rush willing to have that kind of conversation? You know, uh, I never had the sense that he was because if he's not, we run the risk of him just hardening his heart, as it were, you know, uh, uh, and not being willing to have that kind of conversation. Um, Fair enough. and you know, um, and the other thing, of course, when you have these conversations, you do not have them in front of everybody else. You have them, uh, and one of the things I write about in the book about how powerful having a meal with people who disagree with you is and, you know, having it in a quiet place and giving people a chance to unwind and, and sort of be a little, and give them a chance to be honest, you know, uh, and give you a chance to be a little honest, right? Um, uh, but that can't happen. That cannot happen when you're on a broadcast. You know, you're not going to have that conversation. You know, if, if Rush is trying to maintain his, his EIB excellence and I as a day sales force is trying to encourage him to think things a little differently, that's not going to happen on a, or it's le- very, it's not likely to happen on a radio show. It's going to happen behind the scenes and it's going to happen very quietly, uh, probably, you know, uh, and you know, it may be that over time, you know, uh, uh, Rush, you know, if, if, if there was such an opening, he might, change things a little. He might have a different way of looking at, at the world. Uh, I, I will be honest when I said, I don't, you know, based on what I know about Rush, uh, um, I don't see that happening, but you know, part of my role in this common ground is to keep that a corner of my mind open to the possibility that it might happen. Um, have, have you ever witnessed any, because really what we're talking about is a kind of conversion. Um, someone coming around from a, a hostile point of view to a more 
open, accepting point of view. Have you ever witnessed a conversion of that sort where, uh, particularly where disability was, was involved? So let me, let me talk about my work on the abortion issue where we encourage pro-life and pro-choice activists. And when I mean activists, I really mean activists. I mean people who ran Planned Parenthood centers and people who protested outside of Planned Parenthood centers. I mean, we, you know, we weren't talking about the folks in the middle of the spectrum. We we're talking about people on the ends of the spectrum. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on this, uh, I write about this in the book, you know, that we all fall along a spectrum. And so the issue is not so much for me, uh, getting a pro-life person to become pro-choice. That was not what we aimed to do. But what we did hope is that the, um, that the pro-life folks or the pro-choice folks could sort of see where the other people were coming from and find those intersecting issues that they could work on together to, to deal with. So in the case of the pro-life and pro-choice folks, it was teenage pregnancy. Uh, it was adoption. And that was toning down the, the, the heat of the conversation. Those are the issues that, you know, after having those kinds of conversations that, that they, um, could, could work across the aisle to, to see happen. And the, the way I saw this most dramatic happen was when I, and this actually is interesting. Uh, I formed a New York City pro-life, pro-choice group and it was a whole long process. But what was interesting is when the, when we, when the, uh, so the steering committee was formed, they came to me and said, we don't want any men in our groups. Oh. Think about that. We don't want any men in our groups. And I, oh. I was sort of startled and I said, well, why? And they said, because we find men on both sides to be not helpful. Well, I think what they were saying in retrospect was men don't do feelings very well. <laughs> they want to debate. Right. We don't want to debate. We want to discuss. We want to dialogue. We want to, you know, grapple with feelings. Right. Us men did not want to do that, and they knew that. They they had had enough experience uh, dealing with the issue that men were not helpful. And but I, here's I, the thing. Here's the thing, though, Peter. You take the Supreme Court or even a session of Congress. You've got men in there having conversations all the time about very important issues, including abortion. I that's wonder right. how that dynamic works. I, I wonder too, and I'm not I'm not there. But but I, but but based on what I'm hearing uh, from Congress, the Congress folks. The men almost never talk about how difficult, uh, 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 on both sides really, but primarily on the pro-life side, don't talk about how difficult a, a crisis pregnancy is for the woman. They don't empathize, they don't empathize with the woman. They talk about how abortion is murder. That's a thought. It's also with the feeling component, but they don't say, gee, you know, the woman who got pregnant, you know, uh, in a crisis pregnancy, how tough it is for them. You know, they, 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 they're, they're, they're there to win the debate. And if they figure if they win the debate, they'll win the argument. Well, no, they don't. And the reason I know they don't is because look at what happened in Kansas. Debbie, you, you and I were talking about this this morning. Kansas is a very conservative state. And there was a vote in Kansas to, um, uh, to, to, uh, make it more possible for the Kansas legislator to put restrictions on abortion. And uh, Kansas is a very, as I said, a very conservative state. The the um, amendment that they were trying to pass lost big time. Why did it lose big time? Uh, Kansas is a pro-life state. The reason that they lost it is because, um, for, for two reasons, I think. One, I think women instinctively understood that the men who were driving this conversation didn't get where they were coming from. They didn't get the feelings component. 
That's the first reason. The second reason I believe, and this is a different conversation, has to do with uh, something I said to, I've said many times uh, on this program and to Deb this morning, which is um, the main issue, the main difference between pro-life and pro-choice activists is not the degree to which ab- abortion is moral. That's not the major disagreement. They agree on, they disagree on that, but that's not the major point of disagreement. The real issue is the role that government should play in the issue. And I, and for me, this is a critical issue because people are, don't trust government these days very much. This is another whole long conversation, but I'm one of them. Well, uh, and so we, you know, and the women are saying we don't want government in our bedroom. And it doesn't matter if you're pro-life or pro-choice. They, they don't, they don't trust government and the abortion issue. And, 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 I, and we're seeing more and more of this in other states now as well. I want to just wrap up one piece before, because it's getting to be time that we'll be opening the um, questions to the audience. But I, I, I want to go back to the resistance to your participation in New York by the pro-life and pro-choice people. How, mm-hmm. how, how did how did that resolve itself? Well, here's the interesting thing for me. Uh, I had, I ended up facilitating the group. In other words, I led the group, and then when I wasn't there, another male friend of mine facilitated led the group. And and um, as far as I'm concerned, th- both both folks uh, who I worked with they knew me well, and they trusted me to be a uh, you know a a, a a fair you know un, unbiased guy uh, who who got the feelings component. I mean, that was the thing that. Um, you know, I, I was the one who drove that, drove that process. And so they, they trusted me and they trusted the person that I brought on board and they interviewed him and, and he was a, a very laid back kind of facilitator and also worked with Kenneth Soul. And so the two of us knew sort of how this process worked and they trusted both of us. What they didn't want was men in the, in the group. In other words, the, um, you know, they, they liked Eric and me. They didn't like, uh, the pro-life and pro-choice people to be in the group. They want the group to be all women. Does it make sense what I'm saying, Deb? You know, facilitators were fine. The folks in the group were not fine. And that was, that was really interesting for me to really, what did that mean for us guys? You know, and, and uh, I think that really was, was, was a, was a moment for me to really reflect on how wrong, how badly we men have done. It doesn't matter whether you're pro-choice or pro-life guy, how much we've failed. Failed woman on the abortion issue. When, when, when women don't want us around, what does that tell us? <laughs> Nothing good. Anyway, you're listening good. to In Perspective and I'm Bob Ranko and our co-host for today is Deborah Kendrick. We're interviewing Peter Alchel about common ground and how that relates to everyday life and conversations and all that about what we think and how we feel. So I'd like to open up the dialogue to our participants so they can ask questions of uh, of the guest here. So, Herbie, do we have any hands raised at this time? Herbie? <laughs> Let's try this. Okay. That's oh, it, to, it helps Ooh. to unmute and zoom <laughs> um, in case anybody's Much interested. Better. Yeah. All right. So we do actually have a few raised hands. So Jane T, you are up and Deanna, you are on deck. Go ahead, Jane. Jane, welcome to the show. I am glad to be here. All right. When I think about feelings and I think about thinking, one of the issues that I see a lot is that 
particularly problem-solving men, and I would say white men, love it if they can stir the pot in a direction where somebody else will do the work for them. Somebody else will gather up the information. Somebody else will bring it. Well, well, well will you just do that? And I, I, I don't trust men that do that. And I've seen it happen often enough and heard it happen often enough in groups in which I've participated. So that's one thing I'd like you to talk about a little bit, Peter. The other thing is when conversations reach a connecting point where all sides are striving to be better listeners. What is the best protocol for men to adopt instead of jumping into telling their story about how they connect just to better affirm the fact that they, they hear it, they understand it. And having asked those two things, I'm going to shut my mouth and listen. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. So, you, Jane. uh, anybody know Meg, Megan Trainer? Is that name ring a bell to anybody? Yes, a singer. Yes. Singer. <laughs> well, she, she has this song that just came out called, <laughs> I'm your mother, listen to me. I don't know what the song is I've called. I've heard it. it. Yeah. And it's all, it's, this is this very topic. And she talks about mansplaining, which is sort of men talking <laughs> condescendingly toward women. Uh, yeah. and, and, uh, my basic recommendation to us guys is, as she says, no one's listening. When, when, when we men do this mansplaining stuff, we, the women just tune out. So stop doing it. And it, and it's, <laughs> and it's really hard to do, not to do. And by the way, I think the same thing happens between blind people and sighted people. I don't want to get too far afield, but I think mm-hmm. we blind people bristle when, when sighted people tell us how we should think about something. You know, and sort of in this condescending tone, we, we don't like it. So why do we think we should do it to women as men? You know, you get the idea. So uh, my, my sort of basic reaction, um, to the thing is try not to mansplain, you know, try to listen more, you know, try to deal with feelings, all the stuff we've talked about, um, before, um, and you know, but it's hard because we, we are sort of conditioned to, to do this. And it's, and it's, uh, good for Megan Trainer for raising the issue. Uh, it, it, it is a, um, because it really is irritating. I know I'm irritated when people talk to me about, well, you can't see, so you don't understand. I, you know, and it's right. a, in this sort of condescending tone. Yeah, it's really annoying. So why should, you know, I, I hope that what that tells me is let's not do it to other people. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, uh, Jane, to answer your first question, um, cause I want to make sure we give people who are, have their hands raised a chance to address. Um, I was running a, a strategic planning session for a large corporation and it had to do, had to do with diversity of all things. And during the, uh, I had them in small groups and they were discussing certain something. And then what I noticed is that the women were at the flip chart pasting the thing on the, you know, pasting the easel, the, the flip chart paper on the wall. And the women were, uh, the men were sitting yammering. <laughs> and in my basic, uh-huh. so I stopped the group and said, Hey, what do you notice about what's going on around the room? And there was this like silence. And finally a guy said, well, the women are doing this and we're sitting around doing nothing. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, let's continue the, the workshop. And, um, and so after, after that, 
whenever there was a, uh, um, you know, people need to do things, the men got up and helped. And, uh, and I think some, I think two things made that work. One is just raising the issue, you know, uh, and I was an outsider sort of helping the folks do this work. And so that helped. And I think the other issue that really, I think, startled people because people came up to me after and said, how did you know that as a blind guy? Oh gosh. And, and, and I, which was a perfectly reasonable question. If you think about it, well, I mean, it was very, very obvious, but you know, um, I, you know, I'm, I've been doing this for years and, and can pick up on things like this. Uh, and, and, um, I think that an outsider saying that to them, um, sort of got them, got them thinking. Now, I don't know if that changed after their workshop was over or not, but at least during that workshop, that, that dynamic stopped cold. So I just tell that story for whatever it's worth. It was one, well, one, of my, one of my finer moments. So Peter, I have just coined a new word on the spot and it's site splaining. That's exactly right. Site splaining is ex- exactly, I was trying to find the right word for that, but you know, how many yeah. of us have experienced site splaining? Cause have you know, it, yeah. And, and I, I think even maybe a, a, a more poignant example than the one you gave is when they tell us why someone else did something, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, when someone else offends you and you bristle and then there's another sided person that says, Oh, you just don't understand that she was doing that because she could see blah, 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 that you needed blah, 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 because you don't know what you need. They know what you need. Yeah, yeah. Ex- okay. exactly. Yeah. No, okay. that's, that, that's brilliant. That is exactly right. We can all identify that, with it. Yeah. Add it to our vocabulary. Yeah. Okay. Along with, along with thank you dependent. very much. Deanna. <laughs> Diana, you're next. Deanna. Yep. And there's yep. nobody on after her at the moment. So. <laughs> okay. 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 Thank Um, I was thinking about two years ago going to visit my mother and stepfather. Um, at that time, my mother was still living, um, with my stepfather. Now she's in assisted living. Um, but we got into a discussion of abortion <laughs> and it was not a discussion I ever wanted to have with my mother and her spouse because they are very conservative, and I know my mother's reasons. Um, she had three children and five miscarriages because of, of being in a car accident after the birth of my second brother. So she ended up adopting two other children that she was related to and um, whose mothers were not able to, to care for them. And so she raised five children and babies and children were very important to her. So the idea of anyone not wanting a baby, um, just would never occur to her. And I knew that my stepfather was a retired Air Force chaplain. And so he had all of his religious reasons. And so I just, didn't want to get drawn into this conversation. So I listened, you know, to them um, talk. And I said, the thing you're forgetting is a lot of the young girls who get caught in the legal ramifications of the fact that they are minors and they don't get a say. And yet it's their body that's being affected. It's their life that are, that is being affected and their children too. 
So you're fighting for the right of an unborn child and putting that unborn child who is potential but might not even be born even if she tried to carry it to term or might be born damaged so that no one would want to take it in. Um, you're putting that potential child's life over a living child or young girl or woman. And I said, that's, that's not fair. If you're, if you're valuing life, isn't her life important too? And so there was a kind of a pause. And then my stepfather said, I can see that I can't change your mind. And I said, no. And I can see I can't change yours. And he says, but could you still love a Republican? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Pop, I love you for who you are. And your beliefs are your beliefs and mine are my beliefs. But I honor you for the husband you've been to my mother. The father you have tried to be to me, even though I was an adult when you married my mother. Um, I love you for who you are, not for your political party. Mm. <laughs> and I wish everybody felt that way, Deanna. So that's how we've ended it, was yeah. just say, you know, I can see that our 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 values are so different that we can never come to a consensus we can work for the betterment of children but think of the betterment for these children too don't don't leave them out of your equation just because they cuz i said i've i've dealt with girls as young as 11 who are pregnant you know, these are real people that I personally know. And, um, I have dealt with young women who were molested by relatives. Um, sometimes their father, their stepfather, um, an uncle, a grandfather. And these are people I know. They're not statistics. They're real human beings. And so, so, I, so I'm uh, not going to change my views, but I do understand your views too and where you're coming from. Yeah, no, uh, there's so much that that's wonderful. It's beautiful on all kinds of levels because what, what you said about we can agree to, to make, I, I can't remember the exact language you used. We can agree that to make the lives of children better, right? And that's, and that's really what, what, when I did worked on the abortion issue, what the pro-life and pro-choice crowd understood that they both agreed that the whole way that we, that we were treating children as a society was 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 not good that there are things that we as a society needed to do to to make it more likely that the kids would would be would be better supported and the parents of those kids were better supported and that's what i heard at part of that story the other part the part of the story i really loved that you that you talked about is you you had this very intense conversation on the thought level about abortion and children and, you know, all that stuff that, that you talked about. And then you revert, reverted to the feelings channel. And that's exactly how those, these conversations when they work, work, right? You know, you talked about how much you love them and how, how much you honor them and how those are all feelings, very powerful feelings, words. And, you know, 
that's, that's when the conversations work, they work like that. Not, you know, no opinions change. You know, those values are not going to change with one conversation. Sometimes they do over time. And, and when they happen, it's because some major crisis happens to somebody that totally changes their worldview. And even then it doesn't happen often. Um, that's a whole nother conversation, but, but, um, you know, I, 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 it's just a beautiful story. I don't know what to say except thank you. And, and, uh, uh, you know, when those, when those conversations happen and, uh, you know, um, they, it, it is when both channels are activated and used really effectively. And it sounds like that's what you did to, um, you know, with, with your, with your, with your parents. And just letting you know, we do actually have another raised hand. Okay. All right. Who let's, is let's, it? Who is it? Kirby. Area code 713 ending in 865. I think that's Beth, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, though. Hi, guys. No, it's... Oh, okay. It's Who the is Reverend. This <laughs> it's, it's the Reverend. Michael? Yeah. Reverend Michael. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right. Welcome. Yeah, well, well this is uh, this is indeed... Uh, 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 a very good subject. I have a couple of comments. One, the, the general comment based on the, the, what you were, what I heard you saying, Peter, about men and their, their lack of feelings. Uh, I think, I, I, I hope I'm putting this in the proper context, but men, men do tend to care more about themselves. Uh, than, than others. And that's why the Bible talks about, it tells a man to cherish his wife, uh, like he cherishes himself. And, and so that's one of those things that are, that's a characteristic of, of a man. He, he has to work on having that empathy toward, uh, other people and especially his wife. And women in, in his life, it, it's an ongoing uh, process that men have to deal with. It's something so, so, that we should be working on. So, Michael, I just want to interrupt you. Did you notice you used two feelings? Were cherish is a feeling, empathy is a feeling. So, it, it, what, yeah. what the Bible is saying in part is work on that feeling, work on that feelings channel when you're dealing when you're dealing with your with your woman's spouse. Um, exactly, and yeah. and that will help. In, in the decision making process. Absolutely. That would help it. Yeah. 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 I, I once heard one of the Sunday schools, cause I want to get this other point quick. Yeah. Uh, no, Sunday school teacher told us that, that, that women are more empathetic, uh, you know, and the wife is more empathetic, but, but I, after you've been married for a long time, you really have those same feelings towards you. You can feel each other. Mm-hmm. But, the, but, but, but I want to, but I want to make this point about the, the abortion issue. And, 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 and you've probably heard me say this before. You know, we, we, are talking about the abortion issue, but what has been lost in our society is nobody's talking about abstinence. Mm-hmm. It's our attitude towards sexual relations that has really fueled this whole abortion crisis, in my opinion. And so nobody, everybody is uh, uh, accepting that once you reach a certain biological age, you're going to be sexually active. And that's something we've lost in society. 
Well, I, 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 I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but I, except, <laughs> except to say, except to say, um, I think, uh, uh, and, and this, this comes from talking to folks on the, on the abortion issue that this, this idea that we were more sexually liberal, uh, you know, there was less sex going on among, uh, unmarried people in the fifties and the forties and the thirties and the six, even the early sixties. I, I just, I'm not convinced that that's true. Um, I just think that it was, it was under the table. You know, now it's in the open. Uh, I, I'm just not at all convinced and I could be wrong, but, um, you know, having talked to lots and lots of women who went, who, who, who had abortions or were counseling people with abortions or whatever. And, and I just heard so many stories about, you know, these, these, uh, uh, you know, behind the doors or how, whatever term you want to use, um, you know, that, that, you know, the difference is it's now more in the open. And by the way, um, the whole teenage pregnancy issue is much less of an issue now than it was 30 years ago when I, when I was involved in the issue. And that probably in many ways is a good thing, you know, um, but your point is well taken, Michael. I think there is something to be said about abstinence. Um, but I'm just not convinced that it's, it's, much different than it was back in the fifties and the forties. That's my only comment. It just wasn't heard often. It just wasn't talked about. I, I, I agree, but I, but I think just the specter of if if I if I'm caught in that arena, you know, I'll be I'll be looked at differently. I'll be perceived differently. Now, if a teenager gets pregnant, you know, oh, let's find the help. Let's get her help. Let's get her help. You know. There's no recrimination. There's no, hey, you know, you did do something, something that wasn't really, uh, good. It's not a good, it's, it's not a good thing because you are not ready for that child. You're not right. ready to be a parent because as someone said earlier, you're still a child yourself. And my only, my only reaction, to my, uh, my, my response to that is, uh, I think the way things were back in the forties and fifties is the men got a free pass and the woman got screwed. Uh, and, and they still do. And they still, they do. still do. They still do. Yeah. And, and, uh, but now the men, I think, uh, you know, there's more responsibility going to the man now than there was back, you know, when my mom was growing up and the stories that I heard, you know, there, there, there were stories that I heard more than once. And I'm sure you heard them too, Michael. You're, you're not, you know, um, about, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a woman becoming pregnant in, in college. They kick out the woman. The man could stay. Right. Right. What, what's right. that about? Exactly. What's that right. about? You know, I mean, you know, um, but I, you know, but I do think, um, more responsible, uh, 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 sexual stuff is, is a major part of the conversation. And in fact, it was discussed a lot when I was working on the abortion issue. It's, you know, it, it was discussed. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, it's a matter of degree, I think, more than anything else. Um, thank you, Michael. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> uh, that's it. Michael, the only problem I have with your concept is you're talking about punishment for what you consider bad behavior. But what about the young girl that gets molested? Um, what about, you know, it, it, it's still her burden and it's her body. And no, I'm not talking about punishment. I'm talking about mindset and society, and society, the direction of society. I'm not well, talking about punishment. The punishment, the punishment is, 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 is the result of your life after conception or, 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 or 
and 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 the birth of that child because that that's the burden. Okay. You know, we're not we're not ta- well, we're not talking I, about breaking the law. We're talking about living life. We have different opinions of what punishment means, Deanna. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not that. Yeah, let's, Deborah, I, you want to say something? Oh, Deborah, I'm sorry. To, I'm going to uh, wave my uh, gavel here as co-host and say <laughs> we are getting way far afield. This the conversation, <laughs> and we're also, conversation and we also have a, we also abortion. have a minute to go in the program. All right, <laughs> yeah, there you thank, go. thank you, Michael. Okay. I, I appreciate the comment. <laughs> thank you, Michael. We should we should continue yeah. this so, some other time. Uh, we really should. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that one point that Michael brought up might lead you to another show topic in the future. Future as well, and that is um, the the idea that this is a new problem, um, or the need for abortion is new, as you say, Peter. It certainly is not, and I think lots of things um, in our culture that are getting more attention that may surprise some of us are not new. That, I agree with know, that concept, Deborah. So, Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, we're out of time. I want to thank everybody. Deborah filling in for Peter as my co-host for today. We appreciate you making the effort to do that for us. And, of course, thank Peter, you. thank you for being our guest. You brought a lot of inspirational uh, things to the table, and we appreciate that. Continued success with your book and everything else that you do, Peter. I'm speaking to you as uh, as uh, in your role as our guest because I know you better than that. I know you well, so you know how I feel about you. I, I do, and thank you. you know, and, and thank you we for, love and thank respect you. you always. And I want to thank uh, Herbie and Chanel for their part in our show today, along with our participants. I do want to give briefly my email address because we are streaming, and not everybody may not know how to reach us, that, that hear us. It's bobbranco93 at gmail.com. That's bob, B-O-B-B-R-A-N-C-O, 93 at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to have a blind Self-defense instructor. Yes, blind people do teach that. Uh, a lot of us know that, but a lot of us aren't familiar with that. Dana Yarbo will be with us next Friday. Thank you, everyone. Go safe with God's abundant blessings. Have a great week. 